Well, hi, Manual Faith. We are on week two of Church Online together. And while it's uh, not our normal way of gathering together, I'm really grateful that we do get the chance to be together online today and that we get the chance to learn from the scriptures. I'm really excited about the message that God's placed on my heart. And so I hope it's an encouragement to you today. I want to assure you, we did get permission to leave our house and we are maintaining six feet of social distancing while we're filming this video. So, um, you know, as uh, anxiety and questions and chaos seem to be rising all around us, um, this week I, a story came back to my mind. A number of years ago, I was in a meeting and my wife Kelly called me and I would look down at my phone and because I was in a meeting, I didn't answer it right away. But right after I got out of the meeting, I checked my voicemail and the voicemail simply said this, Ethan isn't breathing and I don't know what to do. Click. And I immediately called her back and she didn't answer the phone. And so I got in my car as quickly as I could. I was freaking out, drove home, got to our house, ran up to the door and no one was there. So I got in my car and I drove to the hospital as quickly as I could. And I ran to the front desk and said, do you have anybody by the name of Ethan Paulson who's checked in here? And the person that was working the front desk, uh, she uh, pulled up his name and said, actually, yeah, we do. Um, Ethan's on floor number three and you can go up there and see him. And so my heart was beating like crazy. I ran up the stairs as quickly as I could and got into Ethan's room and he was standing on the hospital bed and he said to me, hi, daddy, I missed you. And I mean, oh my goodness, I was freaking out. And what I realized in that instance was that fear and anxiety don't just affect you emotionally or cognitively, they affect every single part of your being. I, my physical body was responding. My heart was beating fast. My palms were sweaty. I was breathing shallow. I mean, every single part of my being was affected by that news. You know, we're, we are holistic beings that every single moment our brain is processing somewhere around 4 billion bits of data. I mean, take that in for just a moment. Now, we're only aware of roughly 1% of that data, but we're constantly trying to organize it and figure out what to do with it. And in moments like the one that we're in right now with coronavirus and uncertainty and quarantine and stay at home mandates, our brain and body are on overdrive trying to figure out what to do with all of this new information. And typically we have three responses that we can go into when we don't know what to do or when we feel like we're threatened or like we're in a difficult situation. The first thing that we could do is we can fight back. <laughs> The second thing we can do is we can freeze. And the third thing we can do is we can flee or we can run. But in this situation, with this virus that we really don't know what to do with, um, there's a lot of questions that we have. We can't really fight and we can't really run and we can't really freeze. And so for many of us, we just sense this anxiety that's rising in our soul, um, th this worry that we don't know what to do with. And I think in some ways, there's this wave of worry that's just sweeping across our globe and certainly across our community. And today I, I wanna share with you what the scriptures would say about that. 
because while this form of anxiety might be a little bit new to us, certainly um, we haven't had this type of a pandemic before in our day and time. Anxiety as a whole is nothing new. It's something that humanity has been dealing with ever since the dawn of creation. And so Jesus being a brilliant rabbi and teacher wants to instruct us on what to do with this feeling that's rising in our soul. I can't wait to share with you from the scriptures today. I want to invite you to turn to two places in your Bible uh, as we jump in together today. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 15, and the second is Matthew chapter 6. Turn there with me, and we're going to jump into the scriptures together. So Deuteronomy chapter 15 is the context that Jesus is going to draw from in Matthew chapter 6. So we've got to start there first so that we can understand where he's going. Deuteronomy chapter 15 is about what the Hebrew people called the sabbatical year. It was also referred to as the year of release. It was a time where if um, people owed debts, they were forgiven. Um, slaves were released if, uh, if the owners were um, amicable to that. Um, it was a time where uh, if you'd borrowed money, uh, it was written off. And so the Hebrew people had a way of interacting with the sabbatical year. It's the same way that you and I would probably react to it if we were business owners, right? I mean, if that year was getting closer and closer, you'd probably want to give fewer and fewer loans. But God has some pretty strong words for the Hebrew people that they wouldn't start, start pulling back because the sabbatical year was approaching. In fact, listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. There's a phrase in here that Jesus is going to quote in Matthew chapter 6. It says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. So, so don't hold back. Don't stop being generous against your brother. Um, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever they may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, or the sabbatical year, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cries out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Your eye, be careful, lest your eye looks grudgingly on your brother. It was where the Hebrew people got the term an evil eye, to, to have an eye that's, that's darkened, to have an eye that um, sees the world in a certain kind of way, a way where the world is a world of scarcity rather than a world of abundance, a world where we have to protect ourselves and our stuff because there's only a limited amount to go around. An evil eye or a begrudging eye, according to Deuteronomy chapter 15, was a, a dark eye. And it was all about a perspective on the way that somebody sees the world. See, you can either have bright eyes or you can have dark eyes, and it's like a lens that taints everything. And so Jesus is going to pick up this idea in Matthew chapter 6, where he begins his teaching, to, uh, or continues his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. 
where he's telling us as his followers how to become his apprentices. And listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 22. Listen to Jesus as he gives us some instruction. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see what he's doing? He's pulling from Deuteronomy chapter 15. And he's saying, there's a way to see the world that taints everything else. There's a way to see the world that either sees God in the world or doesn't see God in the world. There's a way to see the world that is either with bright eyes or with dark eyes. This word healthy means, uh, in verse 22, means unified. <laughs> it's interesting because Jesus goes on and he continues teaching in verse 25 and he says this, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? See, this, this word anxiety is the Greek word merimnao, and it literally means to be divided. So in contrast to having a healthy eye that sees the world through, through bright eyes, um, a divided eye, has two feet, uh, or feet in each camp, right? One camp says, God, I trust you. And the other says, God, I'm not sure if I can put my faith in you. And one eye says, God, or foot says, God, I believe that you're gonna come through for me. And the other says, I've got to hoard and I've got to take stuff so that I can make sure I make it. And see, here's Jesus' teaching. Jesus is saying, listen, listen, listen. And I'd encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes today, that seeing God in the world changes the world that you see. Seeing God in the world changes the world that you see. And as followers of Jesus, we're being invited in an age of anxiety to step back from it a little bit and to remember that even though sometimes it feels like the world is crumbling all around us, that God is present, that God is good, that God is for us, and that we can still have bright eyes even in the midst of a world that feels dark. One of my favorite stories in all the scriptures is about the patriarch Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, Jacob has this awakening moment, this awareness moment. And he quotes, he says, quote, surely God was in this place and I knew it not. See, I think so many of us, we live our lives uh, drenched in a God-bathed world. I mean, a world where God is present everywhere and in everything. He is constantly here. But there's so many times we just don't recognize it. I mean, I had an experience a, a few days ago before um, the safari park shut down. I took my kids for one last hurrah there for the next few weeks. And because of the coronavirus, I was very aware of all of the different surfaces that they were touching. And normally I'm not aware, but this time I was. And it just seemed like every single rail they had their hands all along. I think they might have even licked the lion cage, the, the glass that keeps us, uh, us separated from the lions. I mean, I'm looking at them going, what are you doing? And they do that all the time. 
I just don't normally recognize it like I did. It's an awareness, a heightened awareness. And when Jesus begins to teach about anxiety, that's his invitation to us, not to have a divided, anxious soul, but to have one that's healthy, that sees God in the world. Because if we see God in the world, it changes the world that we see. So Jesus wants to teach his disciples how to have a different perspective and to see the world differently that they live in. And I think it's a, it's a very um, uh, important word for us in our cultural moment right now. The first thing he draws out is that we have to have this shift in perspective from, from one of scarcity to one of abundance. If you're taking notes, I'd write that down. A perspective shift from scarcity to abundance. I mean, we do. We live in a God-bathed world. We live in a universe that's constantly expanding. And I don't know about you, but in times like these, it's so easy for me to start shrinking back into a scarcity mindset. It's that, that thinking where, if somebody else gets something good, then it means that it was almost like it was taken out of my pocket, right? It's that mentality of, well, it must be nice. You know, if they got the promotion or if that person got engaged or, I mean, you name it, we do this all the time. There's only a limited amount of goods to go around. And so I've got to get mine. But the perspective that Jesus wants to introduce to his disciples is, no, 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 that's, that scarcity mentality and perspective leads to fear and anxiety. And he's inviting us to realize that this world that we live in is actually a world of abundance. But he goes on and he presses on something else that is pretty important, I think, for um, our, our day and time right now. Here's what he says in verse 19. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And isn't that a word for us today? I mean, we are treasure seeking people and in the last few weeks, where we place our treasure has really in many ways been revealed. It's been unearthed. See, because the treasure in our life are the things that we protect, they're the things that we keep, the things that we dream about, the things that we hope for. And Jesus has a few points for us. Here's what he says. Stockpiling earthly treasures is really a, a bad strategy because eventually it, it's all gonna be gone anyway. I mean, think about it. If you're in a living room with a bunch of other people um, or you're sitting at your computer, uh, just, just look around you. Most of the things that you see are gonna end up in one of two places, okay? They're either gonna end up being sold at a garage sale or they're gonna end up in a landfill at some point in time. And what Jesus is saying is, do you really want to invest your life in stuff that doesn't have any sort of eternal dividend to him? And here's his second point. His second point is investing in th that stuff is actually pretty unstable. I mean, we were reminded of that this week, weren't we? Where one day the stock market dropped 3,000 points, the Dow Jones did, and um, another day it dropped 900 points and had the worst week since 2008. And I don't know about you, but I was reminded that earthly wealth is unstable. 
It brought back to mind something that I heard a comedian say one time that, I, that just stuck me, stuck with me. He said this, he said, money talks, but what it mostly says to me is goodbye. And it did this week in so many ways. See, we're treasure hunting people. We are all chasing something and we want our security to be in it and we want our pleasure to be found in it. And so please hear Jesus, right? He's not saying that planning is bad. He's not saying that saving is bad. He's only saying that trusting in your planning is bad and that trusting in your saving is bad. There's actually something bigger to trust in. Verse 24, he's gonna draw that out. He says this, no one can serve two masters. And that's really what this is about. Who, who or what is the master, the guiding influence for your soul? He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So here's Jesus's point. First, it was a shift in perspective. Now it's a shift in pursuit, that our pursuit wouldn't be found in earthly treasure, but that it would be found in heavenly or, or spiritual treasure. But I think we get the wrong idea sometimes of what Jesus is talking about. I don't think he's saying that there's some sort of heavenly bank account and you can store up treasure there necessarily. I think the Apostle Paul draws out what Jesus is, is referring to as he teaches in Galatians chapter six. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. And for the one who sows to his own flesh or earthly, sows in the earthly realm, he will reap corruption. For the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. See, as with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine that don't worry about this life. It means simply to get ready for the next one. What Jesus is teaching us is that we are designed to store up treasure in heaven, which means that we would leverage our life for the things of God, the things that are important to God, the things that ultimately will last. And if you wanna do that, I would invite you to just write down two things, really simple, love God and love people. Love God and love people. That's what it looks like and that's what it means to store up heavenly treasures, to live our lives and to leverage our days for the things that ultimately will last for all of eternity. Good deeds and great love. That's what we were designed for. And those are the things that really will last. See, the last few days have probably unearthed where our treasure is actually being stored and what our treasure actually is. It's an invitation, you guys. It's an invitation to reevaluate in light of the fact that even though it may not feel like it right now, we live in a God-bathed world. And so Jesus continues his teaching. And in verse 25, he gets to the crux of it. Here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Therefore, he says, in light of all of these things that we've talked about in the, in his, in the Sermon on the Mount, that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, in light of the fact that 
God is present and God is good and that God loves us and God is for us. We don't have to be anxious. Wouldn't it be nice if it were just that easy? <laughs> like we could put don't be anxious on, a, on our task list and get up in the morning and go, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to be anxious. Great, click, done. It's just not that easy, is it? I read a medical journal a little while back that talked about the top causes of anxiety. And, and here's what that journal said. It said the top causes of anxiety are health concerns. Uh, see coronavirus right now, right? Stress at work, stress from school, relationship issues, finances, death of a loved one. And, you know, even over this last decade, what we've seen is that the number one reason college students used to go see a therapist was because of depression. And now it's because of anxiety. It's no coincidence that the most highlighted passage on the Kindle version of the scriptures is Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Listen to the apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. He says this, don't be anxious about anything. <laughs> don't be divided or don't feel like the world is strangling you out. That's what that word means. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. See, so you can be anxious or you can be prayerful, but you really can't be both. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word peace is such a beautiful word. In the Greek, it literally means the weaving back together of frayed parts. So picture this, anxiety is being pulled in a number of different directions. It's a divided mind and a divided heart. Peace, on the other hand, is a weaving back together of the frayed parts of our soul. And that happens, Paul says, as we pray. But if you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter four, go back to verse five that precedes that passage that I just read. And here's what Paul writes. He says, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. It's just the reality that the anecdote to anxiety is an awareness of God. The fact that God is present and God is here. And so he wants us to shift our perspective from scarcity to abundance. He wants us to shift our pursuits from earthly to spiritual. And he wants to heal our soul. One from anxiety to awareness. An awareness of God's presence in this world that's everywhere. I heard somebody say earlier this week that anxiety is imagining a future without Jesus. Anxiety is imagining a future without Jesus. But for Jesus followers, for you and for I, we don't need to imagine that future. It's a non-reality because regardless of what comes tomorrow or what comes next week, here is our conviction. Jesus will be present there just like he's present here. It's the exact same thing that Jesus practiced the presence of his father, right? In the middle of a storm, on a Roman cross. I mean, in all of these places, he's interacting with his father, trusting that he's present. 
But here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, this would be a good idea or you should try really hard to do that. He actually gives us some practical tools to be a non-anxious presence in the world. Listen to what he says. He says, look, look, it's the Greek word emblepo and it means to look with a locked gaze to like, to be dialed in. Sometimes at our dinner table, we have a staring contest. I know it's weird, judge us if you want, but we have staring contests. And that's what Jesus is saying when he uses this word. Look, look at the birds of the air. I mean, like actually do it. It's not a hypothetical or an idea. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns and your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And when was the last time you just went outside and listened and looked and thought, man, God, you're, you're providing for all of these creatures, for these birds. Uh, um, Birds work really, really hard. but they don't store up and they don't save and they, they just sort of live present in the moment. And like I said, Jesus isn't saying that saving or planning are bad. He's just saying that trusting in your saving and your planning is bad. And, but here's the deal. Birds are just too dumb to worry. But you and I are often too smart to trust. Here's the second thing Jesus says. He says, and are you not much more valuable than they? Like, come on, you're so much more valuable than a little bird. At least in God's eyes, he's for you, he cares for you, and he is good. He goes on in verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? We'll come back to that in a moment. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. I mean, look at, look at the flowers. When was the last time you just went outside and went on a walk and looked at the flowers? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's saying, go, go look at the way that he has arrayed these flowers with a splendor, a beauty. And I think the picture he's painting is if you really want to shine, if you want to be beautiful in this God bathed world, then plant your life in his kingdom and you will flourish like the flowers. See, changing God in the world changes the world I see. But when I see God in the world, it changes me in the world. And I love that Jesus' teaching is so practical. He he says, actually, this word, look at the lilies of the field. The root of that word is the same root word for disciple. So be discipled by the flowers. And here's his point. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Worry, number one, the reason that we should be discipled by the birds and the flowers and choose to live a life of non-anxious presence, the reason we should do that is because worry is unnecessary. Your father knows what you need. But here's a second point. Worry isn't just unnecessary. It's also unhelpful. 
I mean, look at verse 27 with me again. He says, who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Question, and the answer to that? No one, no one. Ironically, you can't just not add an hour to your life. You can actually subtract hours from your life because of your worry. But here's the second thing he says in verse 34, jump to the end of the passage with me. He says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And if you're following along with Jesus, you're expecting him to maybe say, don't be anxious about tomorrow. I've taken care of tomorrow. Tomorrow's gonna be awesome. Tomorrow's gonna be amazing. I mean, if, if you're Jesus ready to give a pep talk, you're saying, follow me into tomorrow. It's tomorrow, it's gonna be awesome. Only that's not what Jesus says. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying, you don't know what tomorrow brings, but you can't solve tomorrow's problems today. So walk with me in the present. I, I think Corey Ten Boom hit it on the head when she said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its troubles. It empties today of its strength. That's the point that Jesus is making. So Jesus is teaching his apprentices that the way that they see God in the world changes the world that they see. It changes their perspective, moves them from scarcity to abundance, their pursuit, it moves them from earthly to spiritual, and their soul, it moves them from anxious to aware. So the question I'd be asking if I were you is, well, what, do we, what do we do with all of this? And how can we actually practice and put into practice what Jesus is teaching. Let me give you three things, and I'd encourage you to jot these down. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. Intentionally cultivate an awareness of God's presence. You can choose to do this. Um, in fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless you abide in me, neither can you bear fruit fruit. So here's what he's saying. He's using this analogy actually of, of, a, of a vine, of a grapevine. And he's saying that, listen, the branches need sustenance. They need nutrients. They have to be connected to the vine. In fact, this word abide means to make your home somewhere. It's the same root word as where we get our English word abode also, a home. I thought it was ironic this week that we got the stay at home mandate. And I think Jesus would say, amen to that. Stay at home, make your home in me, he says. I love the way that Dallas Willard put it. And this is a long quote, but I would just invite you to listen in. Here's what he says. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. 
But these things are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. And soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Oh, Dallas Willard for the win, so good. This picture of you can decide to point your mind towards God. You can say, God, I'm gonna think about you. And it takes practice and it takes developing the habits and it takes failing and returning and repenting, but we can do this. So here's what you might do this week as a family. You're still allowed to go outside and go on a walk. I'd encourage you to do that. And then be really observant of the birds, of the flowers. Like do what Jesus invited you to do. Or maybe you check out in our notes online that there's a, um, a prayer of examine to practice with your family over dinner. And it just simply invites you to consider ways that you've seen God this today. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to do. Pay attention to what's going on in your soul. Uh, become a student of your own soul. Not, not obsessed, but just aware. So much of the time we walk through life in a, in a fog and our emotions and our thoughts just take us like the waves. Jesus is inviting us to be more aware, to be more aware of the world we live in and more aware of the rhythms of our own soul. Take time to breathe. <laughs> But this week I came across um, a, a really helpful practice from J.P. Moreland in his book, Finding Quiet. And here's what he says. He says, um, retraining our thoughts takes four steps. Here's the first step. The first step is that we relabel our thoughts. If a thought is a lie, we identify it as a lie. And we say, you know what? That's actually not true. Um, God is present. God is good. God is here. So if I think he's not and I have to do everything on my own, that, that's a lie. We relabel our thoughts. And it's helpful to ask God to search us and know us and help us see the ways that we're just believing lies. Here's the second thing we do. We reframe our thoughts. We hold those lies before God. And the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We hold those thoughts before Jesus and say, Jesus, tell me the truth. And then the third thing we, that we do is we refocus. We refocus our thoughts. Um, uh, Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4 to think about what's good and what's noble and what's true and what's beautiful. And then we, and it might be helpful in the refocus stage to go on a walk or go on a run or get outside or have a conversation or watch something on TV. It may just, just to sort of jar yourself out of that thought pattern. And then finally, we reflect. We reflect on the first three and go, God, what, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me? So we cultivate an awareness of God. We become more aware of what's going on in our own heart and our own life. And then finally, we choose to see other people. I love the way that John Tyson put it. He used the acronym that we would become people who are lovers, that we listen, that we observe, that we value, that we encourage, and that we respond. 
In a moment like we are in right now, it can be so easy to become self-obsessed, to hoard, and to make sure that we have enough. And as the people of God, you guys, we are commanded not to lose sight of God and other people. So maybe this week you find a way to, to practice gratitude. I love the way that Jesus ends this. If you're still following along, turn with me to, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom, not, not necessarily chronologically, but, but seek it primarily or seek it only. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. See, in a world where the waves and the breakers seem like they just come in, keep coming one after another and anxiety starts rising up in our soul, Jesus wants to give you the secret. He wants to tell you, here's the way that you can ground your life in a world that is ever-changing and tumultuous and uncertain. Here's what he says. If you want to ground your life, if you want to stand on the firm foundation, an unshakable life is found in an immovable God. That's his invitation. Build your life on my kingdom, he says. Know that I'm present. Know that I'm aware. Know that I love you. Know that I'm good. Seek first my kingdom. And all of these things that I know you need, God says, you'll have those things also. I love that great on him. On Christ's solid rock, I stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood, protect me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, that's the invitation today, to build your life on the rock, on the foundation that will never fade. If you don't know Jesus, I'd invite you to put your faith and put your hope and put your trust in him. If you do, please remember that an immovable life is built on an unshakable God. And when you start to see this God, in the world, it changes the world, you see. Hey, thanks for joining us today. My hope is that your soul is encouraged as you become more aware of the God who is with you. Thanks for joining us. God bless.